0: Welcome to Mud Between Your Toes Year Ender Part 1. The Year Ender will bring you highlights from all my different episodes from Season 2. Today's podcast, I'll bring you highlights from Episodes 1 to 4, so sit back and enjoy. In Episode 1 on 24th of June, I chatted to author Jill Baker about her career in the Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation and her friendship with Joshua Nkomo. Hello, today's guest requires no introduction to many people who lived in Zimbabwe in the 1970s. Indeed, you may recognize her as the voice of the Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation. Jill Baker spent her childhood years in Matabili land before moving to Mashonaland at the age of 14. She studied, studied music at the Guildhall School of Music in London while doing a business admin course. Back in Rhodesia, she worked as a journalist, news and documentary presenter and producer in radio and television for 15 years, becoming what I consider the voice of the RBC. Jill lives in Adelaide, South Australia and has written two books beloved african and the horns the first in her zambezi trilogy she also has a wonderful podcast called land between two rivers but more of that later so jill baker welcome
1: to conversations with peter wood peter thank you and that's wonderful encouragement although sort of thing. saying i was the voice of the zbc well that's uh, well, something thank you for the word.
0: <laughs> it's, it's how I saw it anyway and it's so good to hear your voice and yeah. I cannot do this interview without talking about your time at the RBC in the 1970s. Arguably and as I've already said you may think otherwise, you have the most iconic voice in broadcasting in Rhodesia during those very turbulent times. I doubt if anyone of any color wouldn't recognize your dulcet tone so please Tell us a little about your time in the RBC.
1: We had an extraordinary bunch. We really did. And we also had a few interesting renegades who really loved what we did after, well, with UDI. Not saying one of them who came out because of that, but one of the most talented was a man called Cy Jaffe. And Cy was just, he achieved extraordinary things not only in um production values and all the rest of it but he really was absolutely outstanding in building a team together getting us all working getting us passionate about the place and then gradually of course i moved from a lot of programming and and things into news almost full time and of course that was at a oh that was at a difficult time peter because i would be scheduled on I don't know how it seemed to happen, but almost every time there was some ghastly thing that happened. And I think one of the hardest for me ever was having to read out the death notice of a very close friend. And uh, it was extraordinary because we knew he'd been killed and he'd died two weeks before we'd been to the funeral. And somehow the security force announcement was delayed. And I, I found it awfully hard to keep my emotion in check. Still do, even talking about it now. So they were very difficult times. And there was an interesting gap often between quarter to eight, which was the main bulletin, and then a little dicky one at ten. And, of course, the head of news at that time was Harvey Ward. Now, Harvey Ward was known as Red Under the Bed Harvey, which he probably was, (laughs) but he he was very well versed in what was happening in what he called the Prague Centre for Disinformation. And so I became very well aware of what really was happening at that time, and and much of which, of course, we just couldn't talk about. But the whole team pulled together. It was, we were all good friends. We sparked each other off. We we encouraged each other. And then um, just before independence, uh, the BBC came out and they wanted to restructure the organisation and it was right that it was done because we'd had African service and English service and da da da, da. and they just wanted radios one, two, three and four so um, they said to me would I come up with a concept for Radio 3 which I did and so we got this whole thing together and they said right go. We had I think about five weeks to hire all the disc jockeys we want, we poached them unashamedly from the best places four African four European disc jockeys and we built our studio we were still painting that studio half an hour before we actually clicked over and and went on air and it was a lovely fresh across different set of psychographics radio stations so the appeal was sort of 45 to 20 young vibrant uh, and enormous listenership from all sides of the spectrum it was tremendous but we had a few hilarious times too because some of the African newsreaders really hadn't had much experience of newsreading and so we had a few rescues we had to make but despite that it was a wonderful wonderful program there were some incredible rescues among the Europeans I'm not saying it was just African by any means but wow some awful things happened the people were very gracious and of course it just took all the listenership from everything else. But it was an interesting time. I mean, the whole thing about that country was it was never ordinary. Right from the very start, when King Mzulikazi went through there, right through to now, it has never been ordinary, that place. It's always been the focus of the most extraordinary world attention for a lot of the wrong reasons in a number of times. But all that post-UDI time. I mean, the only other country that had ever declared independence from Britain was America, of course.
0: Later in the conversation, we spoke about her relationship with Joshua Nkomo. Of course, I mean, from my point of view, he was a man, well, he was a man both loved and vilified in equal degrees by all sides of the political spectrum. um what was he actually like as a person Uh, because i have to say this as a child i knew him simply and uh, you know as a terrorist who was Mm. instrumental in the shooting down of a passenger plane and gloating about it to the world press but Mm. you know obviously with hindsight um which is a wonderful thing would he have made a better leader than mugabe
1: oh unquestioning unquestioning um I think his greatest problem was that he was seen to be too soft. He didn't ever want to go to war for a start. And so that was result why there was this big split in Zapu. Those who were more keen to push the envelope more quickly and get things happening, um, Chikarema, some of the others, all broke away and formed Zanu at that time. I've forgotten the numbers, but the dates, but um, It would have been in the early 60s. And Joshua Nkormor kept holding out against that. He was slow to to move, for example, to talk to the Russians when the Russians started talking to um, some of the Zapu members. And uh, Nkormor held back all the time. And he was happy to get money for a printing press, but he didn't want to get money for arms. And so he was a reluctant fighter should we say. He always kept trying to see if there was another way and he became more and more vilified as being lacking courage etc etc. I don't think that was the case at all. I think his probably his greatest problem was that he'd had quite a lot of association with Europeans and had got to understand and appreciate the um, benefits of a democratic society. That's mm. probably all I can say. But in amongst all of that, too, uh, there's a statement that he made, and he said, I'm only just coming to recognize that having one hour fight for freedom, we are not free.
0: In episode two, I chatted to Roxy Dankwards about her work with Wilder's Life, and her dedication to the protection of animal orphans. Roxy Dankwerts is the founder of Wilder's Life Trust and Zen, the Zimbabwe Elephant Nursery. Roxy's been helping sick and orphaned animals for over 20 years. She's rescued and rehabilitated a whole menagerie of animals, from African cats to primates, angolans, birds, and, of course, elephants. Roxy Dankwartz, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood.
2: Hello, Pete. Nice to see you and uh, thanks for having me on your, on your podcast.
0: Oh, it's brilliant that you managed to join me. Roxy, you've been working with orphaned animals for over 20 years. How did you get into this? And perhaps tell us a bit about your childhood. By all accounts, your mum and dad put animals before the kids, didn't they?
2: Well, my mother certainly did. Mum was definitely a, a very much an animal person. She and the and the family were involved with horses and cattle and sheep. And we lived on a farm. We grew up on a farm. And um, I was pretty much an only child for the first ten years of my of my life until my brother came along. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time with animals and just you know had a, a deep sense of connection with them and loved them i mean i wasn't a very good horse rider or anything but i just loved them you know i loved to touch them and talk to them and and yeah they were they were my buddies for 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 a very long time
0: this was in zimbabwe um, yeah
2: this was all yeah so i grew up in zim um in sort of north harari in in a in in the rural area and um yeah that's that that's where it sort of comes from and i think the other thing was that um it was during the you know, war years really here, and uh, you know, I, I found those those years to be incredibly stressful as a as a young child, and there was a lot of fear and and um, anxiety around the liberation struggle as we call it now. And um, what I've thought back on is that those those fears of of, of you know being potentially attacked or being at risk and um, not sleeping at night because you worried that someone would come and attack the house or whatever. Um, and then also having, you know, as I grew up friends, losing family, uh, losing brothers and fathers and uncles and, you know, um, it gave me a sort of sense of, of empathy now with animals, particularly elephants who, who are, you know, at war with humanity, you know, in many different ways, they're at war with humanity in terms of poaching for their ivory in terms of habitat, um, in terms of crop, you know, human wildlife conflict, there's just a lot of conflict around that particular species, which, you know, I find myself feeling a lot of empathy for and it's probably why I like to deal with the baby elephants in particular, and try and resolve a lot of their problems. Um, And yeah, so that's a, a lot of that is where that's come from, funny enough. So it sort of grew organically, really. I didn't intend to have a wildlife sanctuary. And um, to begin with, it was just me doing it. And and then it just grew. And then I, you know, some lions came along and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I just couldn't really cope anymore. So because it was just getting too expensive and my poor husband um, was feeding a lot of, you know, extra children.
0: (laughs) The long suffering husband.
2: Yes, very long-suffering, and that poor long-suffering husband had a lot of animals in his bed. I might tell you, <laughs> um, you know, lions and cheetahs, and even antelope, and um, a vicious mongoose. And yeah, you know, he like, oh my gosh, it was all a bit much. Anyway, he's very long-suffering, and he's still with me, and he's very supportive, and I'm very lucky. <laughs> During the early um, two thousand period. Um, you know, a lot of people left the country and there weren't any vets, so I had to do it myself. So basically, I've I've taught myself, really. And I think that's been really a blessing because you can get very caught up in science when you're dealing with animals. And I believe that to be a mistake, when you're doing rehab, you've got to use your spirit and your soul and your intuition and, um, and also look at very strongly at the psychological side of, of any animal whether it be an elephant or a mongoose or a, a bush baby and um, you've got to deal with that side of it as well as the you know the vet, vet, veterinary side so okay. it's complicated but, but now it's you know it's sort of second nature really.
0: I've read a lot on social media recently about bottles for boomy and buddies can you tell us about that who is boomy?
2: So Bumi is a young elephant that we rescued um, in October last year during the drought. And uh, uh, he was he was a newborn and he got stuck in a, in a riverbed and was rescued by um, some guys from the local rural council and taken to um, Bumi Hill's um, anti-poaching unit who then looked after him. And then we sent up a plane to connect him um, and when he got back he found that he'd been terribly badly sunburned. And um, sunburns a big problem for baby elephants. You know, when they're with their mum, they they generally, you know, they shaded all the time. With this little Ellie being left in the boiling hot sun, dry, dehydrated, nearly, you know, really new gone. Anyway, we um, we nursed him back to health and he's a he's a fabulous little elephant, and he's got a little friend called Kadiki who's even younger than he is, Um, and she'd been very badly mauled by lions. And, but she was, she's a tiny elephant. She, um, she only weighed 66 kilos when she came and five kilos. And um, so those two are best friends. And, but they're just two of nine elephants um, here at the sanctuary that we've got on bottles. So at the moment, you know, we can't have guests which help pay for our costs. Um, And, you know, drink, uh, as you can imagine, an enormous amount of formula. So um, that's what we've been trying to do is just try and raise a bit of extra money to to keep these Ellie's feeding. Because we can't stop because of the COVID crisis. We've got to carry on.
0: I mean, clearly you've had many successes, but have there been any real heartaches?
2: um up in in the release site no not not yet and i I hope we won't um but obviously, at the nursery we've had some really terrible heartaches um of losing babies and and uh yeah trying to cope with that and yeah pete that's a that's a really tough one you know i i i this is not just like a care worker or a nurse or a vet or an owner, you know, I do, with my team, I do a bit of everything. So we're with the animals 24 hours a day. And even if we've had the animal for a few days, you know, I go and and sleep at the nursery and, you know, we're on it. And when we lose one, um, you know, I have to be the strong one and, you know, guide the team and whatever. And, you know, my, my handlers take it very badly. They you know you've got grown men who are weeping over the loss of an animal and i find that really tough because i can't i have to clean up and and show strength and and then i i have to go back and deal with my own grief and absolutely
0: i mean how you know, can Roxy, how, really- how can people help how can they how can they donate a bottle of milk how, you know how, how can people around the world do this because i can i can imagine you know just uh, if everyone bought a bottle of milk that would make a huge difference wouldn't it
2: well it does because you know there is the stress of of just keeping the whole thing going and um we, we we've got a gofundme um uh, platform going at the moment um otherwise our website's got a really good direct link for for donations and and it's really easy you know you can donate five dollars or ten dollars or whatever You feel like donating and um, yeah I mean there's no administration costs because the 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 fund is is run by a friend of ours in the in the US and and so all the money comes directly to us and just goes directly into the animals so that it does take a lot of pressure off us if we can get donations in
0: in episode 3 I talked to Douglas Rogers author of The Last Resort and two weeks in November. In today's episode, I'm honored to be speaking to Douglas Rogers, who's one of the most successful writers to emerge from Zimbabwe in recent years. Douglas is an award-winning author, journalist, and travel writer, possibly best known for his wonderful and witty book, The Last Resort, hailed by the New York Times as the best book on ordinary life for blacks and whites under the Mugabe dictatorship. Mm. So, right, Douglas Rogers, drum roll. Uh, the Last Resort, and two weeks in November. Let's start with The Last Resort. I adored reading it, it's so smooth and well edited, and, and despite those really troubled times in Zimbabwe, it's actually really surreal, and, and funny story of your parents' attempts at running a guest house. Can you tell us about the book?
3: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I was uh, I was a freelance writer living in London um, doing these uh, travel stories for The Telegraph, The Guardian. I was traveling all over the world, but I'd left Zimbabwe and kind of found Zimbabwe, my conservative parents, very parochial, and Zimbabwe was this sort of, boring conservative country I didn't want to spend time there I wanted to go to all these cool cool places and I thought I was living the, the most exciting life and then obviously as you know in 2000 the land invasions started um, and my parents were caught up in the middle of that having a farm in eastern Zimbabwe and uh was basically Woodsy area outside Mutari um, and I started going back from about 2002, I would get these assignments and wrote a number of stories about them and about Zim and what it was going through um, for various British newspapers. And here's the thing that you may recognize. Zim was the biggest story in the UK, the biggest international story for a number of years, right? And I would I would write these earnest stories about how terrible it was and how my parents were um, going through this awful time. and. This terrible dictator Mugabe, and that was the story that I just kept churning out. Um, and then I would go. I went back on one visit to my parents, and they had this. They built this backpackers' lodge called Drifters, um, which had become very popular in the nineteen nineties. Okay, and it was in the Lonely Planet, and um, I had a pizza night. It was a very successful budget resort. And the one trip I went back from London, and it was about two thousand three, two thousand four. I discovered that. Well, all the tourists had now dried up. There was no business. Um, but my father had started, it grown a, a small marijuana crop in the backyard to make, uh, hopefully, to sell it. And then the lodge itself was basically an informal brothel. Um, and my parents, at the age of like in the late 60s, had become um Brothel keepers, um, <laughs> and so I, I started telling a friend in New York, a writer friend of mine named Melanie Thurston. I said this terrible story about my parents and what's come to them, and she was literally in tears, but tears of laughter. She was saying, "But that's the funniest story I've ever heard." And it suddenly something clicked. Instead of writing the same story about oh, what a bad, bad Mugabe was and how what victims like. Black and white Zimbabweans were I suddenly realized I could write this story in a completely different way. And it could be about character and resourcefulness and humor. And Zimbabweans, white and black, have a, a distinctive character, you know, and they're able to um get through a lot by laughing at it. And I, I found my voice, and that's the kind of writing I do now, is I try and be try and find
0: humor. Um, in in everyday life
3: yeah and then also tell stories about ordinary people you know everyday people caught up in things that are beyond their control and-
0: so so uh, the last resort i mean on your i think this is on your website uh, it says pot has supplanted maize in the fields hookers have replaced college kids as guests and soldiers spies and teenage diamond de- dealers guzzle beer at the bar, beyond the farm gates meanwhile, rogue politicians, witch doctors, and armed war veterans loyal to President Mugabe, circle like hungry lions. Now if that doesn't get anyone buying the book, I don't know what does.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it's an adventure story, it's it's sort of, it's comic, but uh, it's kind of like a, a coming of age story for, for me, you know, and discovering that far from being boring and parochial, my parents were hey, much cooler than I was, more adventurous than I was, more tied to a country than I was. And I sort of, they found a, I found writing the book and getting, I found I, I got to know them and I got to know my country and amazing people and characters.
0: Um. I think I think that entire generation there were far cooler than our yep. generation for some reason. Yeah. Um, you know i mean we came along we were far more conservative now yeah, uh, two weeks in november this is your latest book and it reads yeah. like a john le carré novel it's fast it's exciting it's full of suspense i mean seriously it's thrilling and yeah. true um yeah. uh, you know again to quote your website two weeks in november is oceans 11 meets Game of Thrones. Well, I'm not sure about that. I felt it was far more of a spy uh, story. Right, right. Tell us uh, how you ended up writing that.
3: I basically did a, a road trip. I, w- I wanted to write about Mozambique again. Um, it's always fascinated me, and I always found crazy characters in Mozambique. And set off from Zimbabwe in November of 2017. And we'd gone about six days when uh, the coup took in Zimbabwe, uh, the removal of the beginning of the removal of Mugabe by his deputy uh, Emerson Mnangagwa, who he had fired. Um, and Mnangagwa had gone on the run, and he had actually gone on the run into Mozambique. He had fled Zimbabwe for his life into Mozambique. Me and my friends now are in Mozambique thinking, what the hell is happening here? Let's go back to Zimbabwe and take part in this adventure, you know? And so we did that, we were in Harare for the big march that took place Um, and um, basically this time of incredible tension um, and uh, everyone was high in adrenaline, a mixture of this uh, fear and exhilaration, right? Um, And Mugabe was deposed. And I said, I can write a book about this. I'll just write a book about the coup and about this road trip and ending up with the removal of Mugabe, right? And all I, all I had to do was to speak to the military who had carried out this operation. Um, I had the backstory, I had my personal story, um, how I'd got caught up in these events, but I wanted to speak to the military and say like, how did you carry out what had been called the perfect coup? Um, but obviously, this is Zimbabwe, the military don't speak. Um, and I tried everyone, uh, any contacts I had. And I was thinking, I'm never going to be able to write this book. What's the point? And then here's the connection with my previous book, was a friend of my father's who I mentioned in The Last Resort. I called him. He's a businessman and quite well connected. And I said, can you put me in touch with anyone in the Zimbabwe military, any senior officers? And he said, no, I can't. And they're not going to speak to you. But I do know someone who has a story to tell. And I said, who is it? And he said, I'll send you his, his number. And he sent me a number, a cell phone number and a first name, Tom. And it was a cell number in South Africa. And, I, and he said, this is the guy you need to speak to. I didn't think much of it. I was back in Harare a day later and I met up with this uh, MDC activist who had returned to Zim from exile in South Africa. And I was meeting with him and I said, hey, I need to speak to military guys. And he said, these guys won't talk, but I do know someone who has a story to tell. I said, "Who is it?" And he sent me a text. He, he he sent me a number, and a last name, Ellis, and they were the same numbers, as the one same number had been given the day before. And what happened then, like, made my book because I called this number, and the guy on the phone, who I call in the book, Tom Ellis, proceeded on a phone call for about an hour to tell me how he was involved and in instrumental in the coup, and had formed a team, in Johannesburg of these the CIO assassin who had gone down to kill him and he had turned him and they were working together. And then a lawyer named Gabriel Shumba, who was part of this operation, Um, a war veterans leader named Chris Muchangwa. And this is all on a phone call. And I thought, well, this guy's bullshitting me, right? This is just too outrageous. And then he proceeded to say, I'll introduce you to the people that I'm telling you about and then began this crazy adventure, and I discovered what he had told me was all true, and I had a, again, I had like a, a sort of dark comedy adventure about ordinary people caught up in something that basically was beyond their control almost, um, but too outrageous for words, um, and yeah, that's two weeks in November.
0: It was, a, it was a very heady, exciting time, and and it's kind of sad that the mengagwa regime has been a spectacular failure yeah. as well, hasn't it? I mean...
3: Yeah, yeah, what's changed,
0: you know? Yeah, very little. In episode four, I spoke to photographer Palani Mohan. Pallani's work has been widely published by many of the world's leading publications. So listen now, Your work has been widely published by many of the world's leading publications. You've published six coffee table books with another one on the way, and, and I didn't know this, you also have a photo in the National Portrait Gallery in London. But first, can you tell us about the old elephant photo on my wall?
4: Yes, um, well, that picture was taken um, in Zimbabwe, in a national park in Zimbabwe. As you said, it's Wangi National Park. And uh, my wife and I went there for holidays um, after, um, you know, just the two of us. And the night before, we were sitting around a campfire, and the, the amazing guide uh, was telling us about all the animals we we're going to see in the morning. And I told him that I've done a lot of work photographing ele- Asian elephants before, so we got on quite well. And he particularly told me about this one old, magnificent. Um, male elephant who he's seen around for decades. Uh, it's grumpy and it's old and it's blind and, and with a bit of luck we might actually see it. Um, and, and we spoke at length about, about this elephant and, um, and the next morning we got up very early and off we went to the watering hole and after about 10 minutes of being there um, this, this amazing elephant turned up And not only did it turn up, it actually charged us. Um, And uh, I was literally about maybe two foot away from it. And I, I, I've spent a lot of time uh, times around an elephant. And the best thing to do when an elephant's charging you is to be still and not panic, which is easy said and done. And so that photograph you're referring to was the elephant looking very well, very angry. Um, Couldn't see very much, but. Uh, it knew that we were there and wasn't happy about it. And um, yeah,
0: so that, 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 was, that was the image. But by all accounts, you're in pretty good hands with uh, your guide. His name is Tony, someone. I, I can't remember his surname. So when, um, when, when did your professional career start? Well, I applied for
4: a, um, a cadetship uh, when, you know, if you remember those yeah. days when newspapers actually. Um hired people and, and, and um and looked after them. Well, I applied for a cadetship with the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper in Sydney, and I entered, entered a bunch of photographs, and much to my surprise, um, you know i got I, I got the job. Um, there were thousands and thousands of people all across Australia who entered this competition and and whatever reason, two of them got selected, and I was just incredibly lucky. And so a job landed on my lap when I was 17 years old before I even left school. And the Sydney Morning Herald in those days was arguably one of the best broadsheet newspapers up there with the New York Times and the Guardian um, in the world. So, um, you know,
0: I was very, very fortunate. So do you consider yourself a photojournalist or a fine art photographer?
4: Well, you know that's a really uh, interesting and uh, complicated and difficult question. I, I've spoken about this a lot. Um, I, I think I, I consider myself as a photographer, um, simply as a photographer. I, um, I, I don't want to put a label on what type of photography I do because I've done almost all of it. I was a sports photographer for many, many years. Um, I, I, I helped a man take page three photographs when I was 18 years old in the, the, the sun newspaper when I used to work. Um, and so I've done, you know, all kinds of different photography. And I think end of the day, if you want to be really honest with yourself, I think you're a photographer. Um, you, uh, you know, you, you, you take photos for a living and that's the thing. that's what I do.
0: Okay. Now, now very exciting. You're the author of six books, Wind, Water, Hunting with Eagles, Vivid Hong Kong, Vanishing Giants, Hong Kong Life, and Hidden Faces of India. Um, I think I have all of them, Palani. (laughs) Well done, Peter. (laughs) It's really great. (laughs) Uh, By all accounts, Hunting with Eagles was the one that, I don't know, was was the most challenging. Can you you tell us about that book and some of the obstacles you faced?
4: Yeah. Well, um, for... So ever since I was 18 years old, I, um, I've known about uh, the, the, the Kazakh eagle hunters of Mongolia. And I saw it in a newspaper when I was a young, young 18-year-old working at the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. So I've seen pictures of it here, here, here and there. And, and I just, I never forget the first time I saw it. I, it, was, it was a black and white photograph in a newspaper. And it was this incredible image, slightly grainy, um, slightly out of focus, um, of a man standing on top of a mountain. Um, you know, with a snow-covered mountain and he was holding a golden eagle in his hands. And it was just an incredible image. And I remember reading the caption saying it was from the Altai Mountains in Mongolia. And as a young kid, I just remember thinking, where the hell are the Altai Mountains in Mongolia? Oh my God, how amazing. God, you know, how do you get there? You know, and I was just taken into this whole other world. And I've never really forgotten about, about Mongolia or, or you know, that particular image. But after decades, um, I ended up in Hong Kong for the second time in 2012, I think. And, uh, and one night after I returned back from Bangalore doing one of these sort of corporate shoots and, and I was going through some emails and I, I received a junk email from Mongolian Airlines saying that um, you know they just started doing daily trips between Hong Kong and Ulaanbaatar, capital of Mongolia. And, for, and then next thing you know, I just thought, you know what? I've got nothing on for the next month or so. Uh, I'm just going to go and I'm going to go and try and find these eagle hunters. And it was literally, that's how it started. I bought, I bought a bunch of clothes. Uh, it was December. made a few phone calls. Uh, next thing you know, I've got a plane ticket. Next thing you know, I've got a visa and I'm on a plane. And cut kind so of long sorry short, uh, after a week of traveling, I end up in middle of nowhere, on the edge of uh, the Altai Mountains, uh, which borders Kazakhstan, China, Mongolia, and Russia, in this tiny town, and my journey really began. And I went there without really knowing why or what I wanted to do. I just wanted to go there. I guess one of the great things about, one of the most important things about being a photographer is is you've got to be curious. And off I went. And, And I found out after I got there that, The real story was there are between 50 to 60 of these true Kazakh eagle hunters left in that part of the world, and and they're dying of old age and, and the weather conditions. And then I thought, wouldn't it be great to try and meet all of them and do a portrait of them and their eagles and also the landscape outside their ger? And that was the idea. Um, and I, it took me five years. Uh, you know, I it was, and I went there in winter. It was minus forty degrees, minus forty-five degrees with wind chill. It was by far the hardest thing physically that I've ever had to do. But it was by far the most difficult thing. My camera gear had uh, working conditions, um, I could say. And the result is uh, a record of. Of, of most of these men, and most of these men that are photographed are passed away now so uh i you know i i i I ended up getting a really good relationship with them I lived with them, they got to know me and um yeah it was a it was an amazing experience
0: i mean in temperatures like this, a lot of people wouldn't realize this, but your camera gear actually seizes up, doesn't it yeah so absolutely i mean
4: um something happens uh around about minus twenty eight degrees minus thirty degrees uh your batteries i mean that that was the biggest problem the batteries would just um, just stop working so i shot the whole thing on on a medium format digital camera and the, my biggest headache was uh, my batteries and my the fact that um, i was cold and my fingers were frozen and all that stuff but I missed so many, so many images. I would say I missed 80% of the images that I took um, because I just couldn't make, press the shutter or the shutter would freeze or the, the batteries would, would, would go. So I would carry about a dozen batteries with me. I would um, strap the batteries up with gaffer tape under my arms, um, anywhere in your body, Peter, which is warm. I'll let your imagination run. Um <laughs> and when when the time was right i would reach down and through six layers of um, thermals or whatever that i was wearing and i would i would pull out the battery and i would put it in the camera and sometimes it gave me 30 seconds other times it gave me 15.
0: what are you actually working on right now well
4: my I've got a couple of books on the go, uh, and one oh, of them. You're you're, to, you're
0: so prolific. Two books on the <laughs> well, go. Okay. Well,
4: unfo- but unfortunately, something called COVID nineteen, uh, um, you might have heard of it. Um, <laughs> it. It 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 you know it came and stopped it. So I was supposed to, uh, with with a bit of luck, have something out by Christmas this year, and the uh, it is really a book about stillness. Um, I uh, it was about. Um, just images that gave you peace and images that gave you, uh, thought, gave you pause, basically. The images that I've taken you know, 10 years ago and the, image, the way I look at photography now, um, it all really stemmed from a, a, a medical illness that I had a couple of years ago, which uh, hopefully I've overcome. And it really uh, made me think about um, the, the smaller details, uh, of of life that uh, a lot of the times are you walk past. Um, so the book is about about um, about just peace and stillness and space and and um, on, and um, it sounds like something silence. we really
0: need right now.
4: Yes, yes, yes. It's about silence, really. It's about it's about enjoying silence and and how important silence is in our in our in our lives and and photography and art. Uh, play a huge part of, of wellness. Um, you, if you surround yourself with, 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 with art well, that, that, that uh, it's full of silence and, and wellness and, and, and space, you know and you
0: feel better and um, yeah, there you go You've just listened to highlights from chapters 1 to 4 from My Year Ender Part 1 I'll be bringing out more year enders as the year goes on So look out for them. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean. Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.